Welcome to the Trinity Kimberly Way podcast. This week, we're wrapping up a series called Generous Justice, in which we're looking at the topic of justice through God's eyes. Over the last two weeks, we looked at what justice is and why we pursue it. And as we wrap up our series, we're now asking, how should we pursue justice together? What should our posture be? This message was recorded on Sunday, July 4th at our outdoor worship service. And this weekend, as we come to the end of this series, we finally learn how we pursue justice. What our posture should be as we enter into those difficult conversations about justice in the world around us. And this is actually what God's word says in Micah 6.8. He says, what does the Lord require of you? Well, to act justly and to love mercy. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. You see, the answer that Micah gives for how are we to enter into conversations about justice, how are we to pursue justice, is he tells us that we are to walk humbly with our God. Now, how do we understand what that means to walk humbly? Well, I think first and foremost by asking the question, well, what's the opposite of being humble? The opposite of being humble is to be prideful, uh, to be puffed up with pride. And actually, uh, the Bible often talks about pride and humility in pairs, often talking about the dangers that come with pride when we, when we fail to pursue things with humility. In fact, Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, as I was looking into uh, that passage and looking into the Bible's definition of, of pride and why it's dangerous, I came across this wonderful quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, he says, The Bible does not say that pride might lead to destruction. It said that pride will lead to destruction. Why? Well, the practical reason is that pride makes it difficult to receive advice or criticism. You can't learn from your mistakes or admit your own weaknesses. Everything has to be blamed on other people, and you have to maintain the image of yourself as a competent person, as someone who is better than other people. Pride distorts your view of reality, and therefore you're going to make terrible decisions. And we can see immediately why this becomes dangerous when it comes to a topic like justice. Because pursuing justice in our world is a complicated thing. It's a complicated thing because when we're talking about justice, we're not just talking about how do we do right by one or two individuals. We're talking about what are the ways in which our society is so broken that we find the kinds of inequalities and injustices that we see all around us. It doesn't just simply go down to the level of how do I treat my neighbor, but it comes down to the level of how do we pass laws? What kinds of laws? How do we execute and enforce those laws? By whom? How does our justice system constructed? And so on and so forth. We quickly see that when it comes to pursuing justice, it is difficult and it is complicated. And therefore, if pride is at the center of how we do it, we are bound to fail. Because the reality is, is not just that our world is broken, but so are we. And if we fail to acknowledge that, we run the risk of perpetuating the very same kinds of crimes and inequalities that have been perpetuated in the generations that have gone before us. Pride is a dangerous thing 
And if we are, and, and the reality is, is that because we're broken, at some point in pursuing justice, every single one of us is going to get it wrong. Every single one of us is going to make mistakes. That's why pursuing justice is so hard. It's so difficult. It's because nobody sees the entire picture. We can only pursue it together. And in pursuing it together, there is no room for pride. And failure to acknowledge it means that we will ultimately disengage from or fail to pursue godly justice. And this is why God calls us to humility, because humility is the antidote. It's the anti-venom. It's the ultimate medicine that we need in order to enter into these very, very difficult conversations and pursuits together. And, and, and I love the definition that C.S. Lewis gives of humility in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. But in order to do that, it means that we have to be thinking of someone else more, right? That's part of the reason why we often define humility as thinking less of ourselves is because we failed to think of something else more than ourselves. Which is why Micah's passage in Micah 6.8 is so important because what he tells us about humility is that humility comes from walking with our God. He says, humbly walk with your God. Now here's what's so fascinating. Like every other word in this verse that we've been studying, this is a bizarre word. In fact, this word for humility, this is the only time it's used in the entire Old Testament. It's not the standard word for humility. What it actually means, if we were to translate it literally, is it says you need to walk circumspectly with your God. It means that we need to consider every aspect of our lives in light of who our God is and what it means to follow him. We need to think carefully, systematically, deliberately, and diligently on a daily basis about everything that we think, everything that we feel, everything that we say, and everything that we do in light of who our God is and what it means to be made in his image. That's actually what Micah is saying. We need to walk humbly with our God. It means that we are to bring our lives into conformity with God's will. Bring our lives into conformity with God's will. You see, the first two parts of Micah's verse, to act justly and to love mercy, those are about what we do in relationship with others. But this final piece is about what we do in our relationship with God. And what he's saying is he's saying every aspect of our lives, individually and corporately, must be brought into alignment with who our God is and what he ultimately desires. And this is a vitally important message for us today in America. Vitally important. Because I know that the last several series that we've done as a church have been difficult series. I know that Generous Justice has been a hard series because of, of the noise that exists in our culture today around justice. I know that Messy Grace was a difficult series because of the noise that we have in our culture today around things like relationships and sexuality. 
I know that this entire year has been a difficult year to navigate because of the pandemic and all the noise that's out there about things like masks and social distancing and what's safe and what's not and what do we do and what steps should we take together. This has been an incredibly hard year. And it's been a hard year, not just because of what we've gone through, but because of the countless voices that swirl around us, telling us to do this, that, or the other thing. And I know that every single one of these series that we've done, as well as the safety precautions that we've taken as a church, have constantly, almost on a weekly basis, been pushing us as a community outside of our comfort zone. I get that. I hear that. As your pastor, I've heard that. And I've appreciated so many times those of you who over the past year have approached me directly with your questions and your concerns. Because I know that it's been a hard season for us to navigate together. I've appreciated so much people who've called me or sent me an email or even walked into my office with their Bibles in their hands and, and opened those Bibles together and saying, all right, pastor, if that's true, then how do we apply this verse? How do we apply this passage? How do we live out this calling from God? That is exactly the right question. Because the other questions that I've heard from people is people voicing concerns as we've waded into difficult topics. Questions like, is Trinity starting to push a liberal agenda? Is Trinity starting to push a conservative agenda? Is Trinity bowing to the culture? And quite honestly, I can understand why those are concerns because of all the voices that are swirling around us. In fact, as I've talked with my fellow pastors about what has been hard this past year, as I've listened to them on phone calls and in Zoom meetings, and as I've actually had to visit that, a couple of them finally face-to-face, I've said, what's been so hard about this year for you? Has, has it been some of these subjects? Has it, been, has it been the pandemic? And they said, actually, it's not the, the pandemic. It's not the politics. It's not even these issues. It's the um, incredible confusion that exists among our people. And what we feel as pastors, what we struggle with is the fact that, that we get to talk to you about God for 15 minutes if you, your prayers are answered, 25 minutes if my prayers are answered. Okay? Uh, once a week. How do we possibly compete with the 24-hour news cycle? When we have our favorite pundits from Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or NPR or Breitbart or whatever the news thing is that you love to listen to, how do we possibly compete 15 to 25 minutes? It's going to be 25 minutes today. How do we compete with that? Likewise, how do we compete when we study our Bibles at best 10 to 15 minutes a day and then spend hours scrolling through social media? How do we compete? In the cacophony of voices that are out there, how can we possibly get a message that reaches the hearts and minds of people when we are being formed and shaped by every opinion under the sun except the one that matters most? God and his word. His voice spoken to us every single day. See, what this, what this verse challenges us to as God's people is not to view our church or our faith through the lens of culture or through the lens of politics or through the lens of economics or through the lens of social media, but rather to view the rest of life through the lens of God and his word.
to seriously, circumspectly consider every aspect and not to just assume that we know it. In fact, one of the greatest bits of advice that I received was from one of my professors in seminary. This is a man who's fluent in Greek and Hebrew. A man who had spent three decades of his life not simply studying God's word, but writing authoritatively on it in scholarly journals, in commentaries, in articles, in in books for, for churches and for Christians to read. And I remember him saying, he says, you know, one of the greatest things that you can do as a pastor is every single time you open your Bible to assume that you have no idea what it means. To approach it with fresh eyes and to ask yourself the question, do my assumptions actually make the best sense of this passage? Or is there something that God desires to say to me that I may have missed, though I've read this time and time again? Easily one of the best pieces of advice because it's putting into practice what Micah is talking about here. To walk humbly with our God, not assuming we know but daily, diligently, searching his word and applying it to our world. He says, if you're going to pursue justice in the way God desires it, much less if you're going to live life in a way that is reflective of his purposes, you can do nothing less. You can do nothing less. And the reason why is because when we study his word, we are brought face-to-face with who he is. Face-to-face with who he is. Brilliant passage that was read earlier uh, by Celeste from Matthew chapter 20, in which the disciples clearly were viewing Jesus through the eyes of their culture. It says that uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeled down and asked a favor of him. And he said, well, what is it? What do you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You see, they were coming to Jesus saying, well, if you truly are a king and a king who's ultimately going to come into his kingdom, then we, as your followers, would really like to have the seats of privilege. After all, we've been following you, right? We've been putting into practice your teachings. We've been doing what you've been telling us to do. Therefore, according to the world standards, faithful servants get rewarded. They get to sit in the seats of honor. They get to, ser- they get to, to be served, to have positions of authority and places of power. That's the way kings operate. That's the way kingdoms are run. And then Jesus says something truly profound. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said that in his kingdom, the greatest are the least. That in his kingdom, kings take off their crowns and instead wrap a towel around their waists. 
that in his kingdom, rather than standing ahead above everyone else, the king gets down on his knees and washes the dirty feet of the people who would betray him just a few hours later. In his kingdom, kingdoms die, uh, kings die for their people. In his kingdom, the greatest are those who serve. In his kingdom, to pursue justice means that we exercise power not for ourselves, but by giving it away to others. Greatness is found in emptying our lives as a ransom for many. Every ransom bears a cost. But when it's paid, it leads to true freedom for those who are held captive. Jesus would show them just what this meant by going to a cross for his own disciples. For though he was a king, he was willing to die not just for his friends, but for his enemies. He was willing to die for those who nailed him there. And he says, this is what I have done for you. And when we study God's word, when we look at how our God himself brings healing and restoration into our world, that's the way he does it. How can we do anything less? To walk humbly with him is to look back at his word and say, Lord, how have you called me to serve? To lay down what I have to pursue the good of others. That when we pursue justice in that way, we truly are walking with the God who gave up everything in order to save us. And in a world where the loudest voice always seems to win, where people talk about fighting back, taking back, canceling, outdoing, winning, losing, so on and so forth. Here comes a king with an upside-down kingdom. He says, the kind of restoration that I bring upends all of that. And that walking humbly with me brings into this world something which is so desperately longed for. A kind of love that has no limits. A kind of justice that does not discriminate. A kind of humility that truly allows people to serve in ways that are life-giving, not just for us, but to those around us. That's what it means to be shaped and formed by his kingdom. That's what it looks like to walk his servant way. That's what it means to pursue generous justice. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to walk your servant way wherever love may lead. And bending low, forgetting self, each serve the other's need. You came to earth, O Christ, as Lord, but power you laid aside. You lived your years in servanthood, and in lowliness you died. You bid us bend our human pride, nor count ourselves above, the lowest placed, the meanest task that awaits the gift of love. May it be so, O Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.